Whatever you do, whatever you enjoy, you need your health. Welcome to the Original Guide to Men's Health, a podcast designed for men of all ages to learn about and access good health. This guide shares knowledge on how to be and stay healthy. Maintenance and prevention strategies, along with reviews of conditions and issues affecting wellness are explored. Please join me, your host, Dr. Richard Pellman, as I interview renowned experts who will provide you with timely, relevant, and vital information so that you can embark on a journey towards better health. For more information from this podcast, including take-home points and resource links, we invite you to visit our website, theoriginalguidetomenshealth.org. You can also find us on social media. We invite you to follow us there and share episodes on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Do you have aches and pains you've always wondered about? Sore fingers, sore joints? Is it arthritis? What type of arthritis? What's the problem? Is it just wear and tear, or is there something else wrong? On today's episode of the Original Guide to Men's Health, we'll be exploring the rheumatological diseases. Many people are aware of rheumatoid arthritis as a main example, but there are additional rheumatological diseases that we'll discuss. Our guest is Dr. S. Lewis Bridges, Jr., M.D., Ph.D., is Physician-in-Chief and Chair of the Department of Medicine at Hospital for Special Surgery and Chief of the Division of Rheumatology at the Whale Cornell Medical Center. He is currently President of the Rheumatology Research Foundation and a member of the Executive Committee of the Board of Directors of the American College of Rheumatology. So welcome, Dr. Bridges. Appreciate your joining us today and uh, to review rheumatologic disease. And I think most people are wondering, well, what is rheumatological diseases? I know arthritis, but even that gets a little complex. And then we add in immunology because a lot of departments are rheumatology and immunology now, and there's such a tie-in. So if you just want to take a moment and briefly review just sort of the concept of rheumatologic diseases, autoimmune diseases, rheumatology, and immunology, how that all ties in. So thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So rheum, R-H-E-U-M, comes from a not a very pleasant derivation. It's the kind of gunky stuff in your eyes when you don't feel well. Unfortunately, our specialty is named after that. But what it means generally is we have a lot of arthritis, non-surgical arthritis care is what we do. But we also have rheumatic diseases, which are generally inflammatory and autoimmune. But we also take care of a lot of strange diseases that don't fit anywhere else, such as inflammation of the blood vessels, so-called vasculitis, gout, uh, which is a type of inflammatory arthritis caused by deposition of crystals, inflammatory disease of the muscle, myositis, fibromyalgia, because it involves a lot of pain in the muscles and the joints. A lot of those things kind of fall under our rubric. And the majority of what we do is arthritis and some of the more common rheumatic diseases like 
lupus, scleroderma, Sjogren's syndrome. And then within the, the realm of arthritis, we take care of degenerative arthritis, such as osteoarthritis, but also different types of inflammatory arthritis, such as psoriatic arthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, and then also a set of diseases uh, characterized by inflammation in the spine, so-called seronegative spondyloarthritis, and that includes things like ankylosing spondylitis, reactive arthritis, and things like that. So we have a set of diseases that are characterized by the pathology, inflammation, and, and autoimmunity, and by which organs are affected, meaning joints, and then some systemic illnesses that fit into our specialty. And they fit into our specialty in large measure because of what you alluded to earlier, which is immunology. So other things that are starting to fall into our purview are IgG4 diseases, which include things like um, some strange conditions that people may not have ever heard of, like retroperitoneal fibrosis, that is now an IgG4 disease. So immunology encompasses a lot of what we do. And then also some divisions, as you alluded to, also include allergy immunology, which is a little bit different than rheumatology and immunology. Allergy immunology is asthma, primary immunodeficiencies, secondary immunodeficiencies. So we're one of the youngest specialties. Rheumatology is about 100 years old or so as opposed to some other ones. But it's a very gratifying specialty. And most of our practice tends to be focused on the outpatient setting. We get to know our patients for a long time because many of our diseases tend to be chronic. So it's a long-winded answer, but hopefully it gave you some insights. Let's start with the more common, the arthritis, both osteo and rheumatoid. And is you see a patient in clinic who comes in and says, you know, I've had chronic aches and pains, and somebody told me to come and see if I have arthritis. So let's go through what somebody might do to, you know, come in and who needs to come in? When should people be concerned that it's just not a normal ache and pain? And then what happens when you see them in clinic? And how do you make diagnosis and differentiate the two? Well, we see a lot of patients with pain, so joint pain, sometimes muscle pain. But for arthritis, joint pain, joint swelling, joint stiffness are the most common symptoms. And um, in general, swelling of a joint is an indication that you should see a physician. That doesn't mean you shouldn't see a physician if you don't have swelling. But if you have, if something's impeding your quality of life, if you have swelling of a joint, you should see someone for it. And oftentimes it's a primary care provider either an internal medicine doctor, family medicine doctor, nurse practitioner, under one of those specialties. What we generally do when we see a patient for the first time who says, my joints hurt or swell or are red or are stiff, is the, the most important part of what we do is take a detailed history from the patient. So we ask a lot of questions, um, and that is to try to pin down what the diagnosis is. And one of the first steps is to try to decide, is this inflammatory or is it non-inflammatory? Non-inflammatory meaning degenerative or osteoarthritis. And the term osteoarthritis is what most people mean when they say, I have arthritis. Far and away, the most common type of arthritis is osteoarthritis, a degenerative arthritis. But there are many 
different types of arthritis, if you split out into different causes of different you know, infections that cause so-called septic arthritis, there's maybe as many as 150 or 200 types of arthritis. But in general, the categories, the first, first pass we try to make is, is it inflammatory or is it non-inflammatory? And that's not always as easy to determine as you might think. But after the history, what we then do is we examine the joints and we examine the entire patient to listen to the heart, the lungs. Complete physical exam is something we do as a rule because so many of our types of diseases affect the entire body, multiple organ systems, not just one, not just the joints sometimes. So, and then I would say for a lot of our diseases, the types of arthritis that we see, after the history and the physical examination, we most of the time have a pretty good idea of what we're dealing with. Not always. Um, we then proceed to typically things like lab tests, which include usually blood tests. Sometimes if there's swelling of a joint, draining the fluid from the joint to look at it under the microscope and see are there white blood cells in there or not. If there are more white blood cells, it generally indicates inflammation. Uh, are there crystals? And that could show gout or pseudo-gout. Are there bacteria? Is the culture positive? And that means you need antibiotics quickly. And then we also do a lot of very simple blood tests, measures of inflammation, such as what's called the SED rate or erythrocyte sedimentation rate or the CRP, which is C-reactive protein. And those are not very specific measures of inflammation in the body. And then we often do routine tests, CBC, um, chemistry profile, look at the kidney function, electrolytes, liver, et cetera. And sometimes we do more specialized tests looking for autoantibodies, which again, usually go along with inflammatory arthritis. So for example, rheumatoid arthritis, we check antibodies called rheumatoid factor despite the name isn't specific for rheumatoid arthritis, and an antibody called the CCP antibody, anti-CCP. And depending on if we suspect arthritis that goes with lupus, we would check other tests to look for lupus or other rheumatic diseases or vascular diseases, as we talked about a little bit earlier. And then we also do x-ray films a lot, and starting with simple films like a traditional x-ray, we can sometimes then progress to CT scans or MRIs or ultrasound examinations of particular joints. But I think, you know, as I said, with the history and the physical, we often have a pretty good idea. When you add blood tests and imaging onto that, we typically, in most cases that are straightforward, which there is probably no such thing as a typical case, but um, in, in, uh, after those four uh, parameters, history, exam, lab tests, and x-ray films or imaging, we generally have an idea of, I would guess, 80% or 90% of the time, a pretty good first guess. But of course, at depending on where you go, if you go to a referral center where, quote, all the easy patients have been taken out of the mix and people know what they have, then there's a lot more patients that are more complicated, complex, overlap. And then it's also important to note that sometimes we make a diagnosis after two or three visits, not after the first visit. 
So that's generally the first pass in seeing a patient. When somebody has a swollen joint that may be warm and, and you're looking at them, is that typical, more typical of rheumatoid versus osteo? Or? Generally, uh, if a joint is red and swollen, it's more indicative of inflammation. There's rare subsets of osteoarthritis called inflammatory osteoarthritis, but by far and away, most forms of, of uh, osteoarthritis are not inflammatory, so they're not red, but they can be swollen. Um, and so when there is red, swollen, warm joints, that's a danger signal that you should be seen by someone, a physician, sooner rather than later. But you know, again, it's not like if it's not swollen, you don't have to see somebody. And if it's red and swollen, it doesn't mean it's an emergency necessarily. But I think in general, the signs of inflammation from the old Latin terms, rubor, red, dolor, pain, swelling, which is two more, um, you know, those things generally point us toward inflammation. And because uh, bodies are complex and diseases are complex, can patients come in and have both rheumatoid and osteo? Yes. In fact, the majority of patients who have rheumatoid for a long time, because it's a chronic disease, many of them have osteoarthritis as well. And so sometimes we see patients that come in for a knee replacement or hip replacement, and they're told that they have rheumatoid arthritis, which they do. But when the tissue is taken out, it's scarred down. And if we see bone spurs, it could be secondary osteoarthritis. So primary cause is rheumatoid arthritis. And then the secondary cause of the pain is osteoarthritis. So we, we see those two types of arthritis together very commonly. And does one affect certain joints more often than the other or typical progression of joints for each of those, just generally? Yeah, that's a good question. So there are certain patterns of distribution. And when I talk about the history, taking a history from the patient, examining the patient, the distribution of joints is a very useful clue. And so typically, but again, not in every case, but typically rheumatoid arthritis, let's say, because uh, I'll use that as a sort of a prototype of an inflammatory arthritis. Typically, that affects the small joints of the hands, so the knuckle where the finger joins the hand, and then the first joint uh, distally, which is we call the proximal interphalangeal joint, the close joint between two phalanges bones, and that affects the wrist, and it affects the small joints of the feet, but it also can affect the ankle, the knee, the hip, the cervical spine, the neck. It does not usually affect the lumbar spine. So osteoarthritis typically affects the distal joints of the fingers, so the, the knuckle next to your fingernail. And also it can affect the knee and the hip. It generally does not affect certain joints that are affecting, affected by rheumatoids, such as the the knuckles where your hands and your fingers join. It can, but generally does not. So the distribution of the joints that are affected uh, and symptomatic is also very important. And when somebody has some of the blood work and you know their 
you're pretty certain as a clinician that they have rheumatoid, but say they come back negative on the blood test, can they still have rheumatoid? Well, that's a great question. You're asking a lot of really good questions that I think the public will want to know. So about 70% or 80% of patients with rheumatoid arthritis have these antibodies in their blood, but about 20% or 30% do not. So, you know, and then the other interesting thing is, is rheumatoid factor, which you would think would mean you have rheumatoid arthritis. If you have that in your blood, it's not very specific. So you can see as much as 5% of the normal aging population can have rheumatoid factor in their blood. And any kind of chronic inflammation can, can cause it. So it's not very specific. So you can have rheumatoid arthritis without these antibodies. And if you have these antibodies, it doesn't necessarily mean you have rheumatoid arthritis. But the other antibody that I talked about, the CCP, is very different from rheumatoid. And about 60% of patients with rheumatoid will have that antibody. So you don't see it as frequently as you do rheumatoid factor. But if you have that antibody and it's at high titer, that's very suggestive of rheumatoid arthritis. And if you have high levels of both rheumatoid factor and CCP antibody, and you have swelling of your joints, in the absence of another explanation, like osteo, there's, if there's no other explanation, that means you have a pretty high likelihood of, of either having rheumatoid arthritis or potentially developing rheumatoid arthritis in the future. Because interestingly, these antibodies can predate uh, onset of clinical symptoms, meaning that um, some very interesting studies were done using blood banks in Scandinavia. So they these investigators looked at the stored serum from people who gave blood 30 years ago and they tested their blood. They'd given blood once a year. They said, okay, well, look, we have all these samples going back. Let's contact these people and see if they have rheumatoid. And they found a fair number that had rheumatoid. And when they tested their blood from stored samples, a lot of them had rheumatoid factor and CCP antibodies for five or six or 10 years before they ever had any symptom of arthritis. So it's a very interesting phenomenon. So if you have the antibodies, it is much more supportive evidence that you have rheumatoid or that you're going to get it. But if you don't, it doesn't mean you don't have rheumatoid. Now, when you have patients with rheumatoid arthritis and, you know, they have perhaps associated conditions. What are the main things that you see that patients with rheumatoid might have? Well, it's really interesting because there's several comorbidities. Um, one, of the, one that we worry about a lot is cardiovascular disease. And so um, there's some evidence that um, having rheumatoid, certainly with inflammation, increases your risk of cardiovascular disease, stroke, heart attack, et cetera. But even if your disease is relatively well-controlled, it still seems to be somewhat elevated that you have a risk of what we call comorbid, meaning occurring together, causing abnormalities together, disease. So there's other ones too. Interstitial lung disease, we see that um, is a side effect, not a side effect, but can be a manifestation of rheumatoid as well. Um, so there's, there are other conditions that go along with rheumatoid that 
we do need to pay attention to. So when we diagnose rheumatoid, we often check the lipids. Uh, we tell people to quit smoking. Smoking is a known associated factor in rheumatoid arthritis. Gingivitis is associated with rheumatoid arthritis. So people that have inflammation of their gums, periodontal disease, they're more likely to develop rheumatoid arthritis too. So there's interesting comorbidities. When you have a patient who then you've diagnosed, and I, I imagine there are stages of severity within the diagnosis itself, that some people uh, present early or maybe aren't as severe, and other people have progressed to a more significant stage of the disease. First question I have, do rheumatoid patients with rheumatoid arthritis, does it progress from certain joints to the larger joints? Is there a upstream effect or... Well, there is often progression. It doesn't necessarily, you know, it hasn't really been looked at in as great a detail as you might imagine, but it is known to progress from joint to joint, but it's not necessarily based on the size of the joint. It doesn't always start with the smaller ones and go to the bigger ones. Sometimes you can see a knee, but as I mentioned, the diagnostic pattern is of small joints of the hands and the feet, but you do see progression in a certain subset of patients. So there, there are some patients that present and they clearly have rheumatoid arthritis and it's fairly mild, limited to a few joints, and they don't feel that bad and you treat them with a fairly innocuous medication and they do well. Then there are others that are on the other end of the spectrum that, that wake up one day with multiple joints swollen and it progresses rapidly and you see them uh, as a physician and they have many joints swollen, those are the people we get very aggressive at treating their inflammation of their joints because we know that the longer you delay <clears throat> in treating the multiple joints that are inflamed, the more uh, adverse you're going to end up in the long run, <clears throat> the worse your outcomes are in the long run. So before we go directly to treatments, the joints that are being affected, are they destroying the joint? Is the disease actually hurting the joint itself, not just inflammation, but? So um, <clears throat> the target in rheumatoid arthritis, the target of inflammation is what we call the synovium. And the synovium is like a, a fine, it's like a small piece of saran wrap that is inside the joint and kind of holds it, helps hold it together. And that actually becomes very inflamed. So you could think of like a piece of saran wrap being attacked by your immune system and getting thicker and more swollen. And then that actually invades into the cartilage and that can damage the joints. And that's what leads to the joint damage. It can also cause damage of the tissues around the joints, like the tendons and the uh, bursa, which is like a small flu fluid filled sac that goes between two things that would rub together. But um, fortunately, not everybody destroys their joints. So there are some people that have fairly mild disease and can be managed with some oral medications for a long period of time, and that it seems to help them a lot. Uh, about 5% or 10% of patients will go on to have very severe erosive disease. But the good news is, and I know we'll get to treatment in a second, but when I was training a long time ago, we would see people with destroyed joints fairly frequently. 
now we have so much better treatments, we don't see it as much. So there is a lot of hope for treatment and a lot of ways to prevent the long-term consequences of this chronic inflammation. So uh, somebody comes in and says, um, you know, I've had these joints, you make the diagnosis. And they also say, you know, I've been tremendously depressed recently. Is there any associated data with depression or fatigue or, and, you know, specifically with rheumatoid arthritis? Yes. Fatigue is a very common symptom in rheumatoid arthritis. We see joint pain, joint stiffness, joint swelling, but we often see, very often see fatigue. So it goes along with it. And is it just affecting your entire body with inflammation, your body trying to fight off this inflammation? That's part of it. Can sometimes even cause a mild anemia. So, you know, that's another cause of fatigue. And then depression, it's a very interesting concept because most patients with rheumatoid tend to have some degree of depression, but it's a chicken and an egg. If you don't feel well, your joints hurt, you can't do what you want to do, I think it would be natural to assume you're going to be somewhat depressed. Some of the other diseases we see, like um, lupus or fibromyalgia, depression is a really often a really key part of it. So in rheumatoid, it, you, we do see depression. It's probably more common than um, you might imagine. And we encourage, as we teach, we encourage clinicians to think about depression in their rheumatoid arthritis patients. But it's often difficult or challenging to say, is the depression causative? I think my impression, and most people I think would agree, is it's most common that you have depression in part, at least, as a result of your inability to do what you want to do or to feel as well as you want to feel. So we look at the patient now, we've made the diagnosis, they are back and go, well, what can we do? And let's start with the early stage patient. It's more mild. You talked about oral medicines that people generally can tolerate for long-term. What are those medicines? So if someone has relatively mild rheumatoid arthritis, and the way I define mild is the inflammation counts are not exceptionally high. There's probably four or five joints that are tender and maybe some swelling, stiffness in the morning for an hour or so. If it's relatively mild as opposed to 20 swollen, red, tender joints with sky-high inflammatory counts and can't get out of bed. So if you talk about mild, one of the drugs we often use is hydroxychloroquine or Plaquenil. We use that quite a bit in mild, earlier disease. It's a pill that you take usually twice a day. Sometimes we can taper it down to once a day. And patients tend to respond to it relatively well if they have mild, early disease. I will say, too, that early and late and mild and severe isn't always, those are two different parameters. So just because it's early doesn't mean it's mild. And just because it's severe doesn't mean it's longstanding. So so we take into account how long you've had the disease and how severe it is at the time that we see you. But Plaquenil is uh, one of the drugs we use for moving up to more severe, moderate disease activity, let's say. And we try to objectively assess disease severity or activity by counting the number of joints that are tender and swollen. 
and assessing the patient's global state by asking them on a scale of one to 10, how bad are you today? And the physician weighs in and often we get the inflammatory markers. But as you move up to more moderate, then the most commonly used initial drug is a drug called methotrexate. Methotrexate is given by mouth or it can be injected under the skin. It's not given IV, but it can be injected under the skin. And that, if we talk about oral therapy in methotrexate, it comes in 2.5 milligram tablets. We often start four to six tablets. It's given, interestingly, once a week, not daily. And then we can ramp it up to as much as 10 pills a week over a period of a couple of months to try to see if it will help. We also use concomitant with methotrexate, we use folic acid, which is a vitamin, but using folic acid along with methotrexate has been shown to reduce the likelihood of some of the side effects of methotrexate, which include nausea after taking the pills. Sometimes it, it can cause elevated liver function tests, so we do have to check blood counts and liver tests and blood counts for because it can also cause anemia. So we use folic acid to try to prevent sores in the mouth and nausea and to some degree protect against some of the other side effects of the medication. So that's kind of the gold standard in many ways of moderate to more severe. We almost always start with methotrexate. In part, that's because insurance companies generally say that they'll pay for methotrexate to start. Some of the other drugs we have that are much more effective, even in combination with methotrexate, they're much more expensive. So generally, the first line for mild is Plaquenil, although some people, some clinicians jump right to methotrexate. And then for moderate or more severe, often the starting point is methotrexate. The other category of drugs we use is to help the symptoms. So non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. So someone that has fairly mild disease could go on an anti-inflammatory like um, ibuprofen or naproxen. Uh, there's a whole bunch of other ones, uh, celecoxib, which goes by Celebrax. And so those drugs are commonly used, but we try to not give people those drugs long-term because they can cause, some of them, can cause bleeding ulcers or other problems. And then the other uh, drug category that we use is steroids, corticosteroids, glucocorticoids, they're sometimes called. And that's things like prednisone. Sometimes patients will go on a Medrol dose pack where you take six pills of cortisone derivative once a day for one day, and then five the next, four the next. And sometimes that can help physicians determine whether this is inflammatory or not. If someone has inflammatory arthritis and respond, they respond typically very dramatically. Sometimes people that don't have inflammatory arthritis respond too because steroids are very powerful. But steroids, like NSAIDs, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, can have long-term side effects. And so we don't rely on them uh, primarily we use the drugs that we call disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drugs or DMARDs, and that is the category that includes things like hydroxychloroquine or methotrexate. So we've been mostly talking about treatment for rheumatoid arthritis, 
certainly anti-inflammatories would take care of osteo issues as well. So let's just break out for a second to osteo. And patient comes in and there's no rheumatoid arthritis, but fairly significant osteoarthritis. What do you give them? Well, that is not as gratifying for the patient or the physician to treat often because um, we don't have any drugs that we think modify the course of the disease. So the treatments for osteoarthritis tend to try to um, address the symptoms. NSAIDs, as we talked about, we use that uh, as first-line therapy, but again, we don't like to have people on it for a long time. Some people start with Tylenol, acetaminophen, but that generally doesn't help quite as much, but it's worth a try. It's safer than the NSAIDs, doesn't cause bleeding in the gastrointestinal tract. You know, sometimes there's a lot of different philosophies. Injecting the joint with corticosteroids or cortisone derivative often helps. Some physicians inject with what's called hyaluronan, sometimes called, you know, it used to be called when it first came out, give me that chicken comb, that rooster comb stuff. It's derived from that. And physical therapy um, is often a first-line treatment for osteoarthritis. It may help with the pain. For osteoarthritis of the knee, I think people really need to know that they should strengthen their muscles in their legs, particularly in their thighs, because if you have osteoarthritis of the knee and you have weak, what we call quadriceps, the muscles in your thigh, it puts a lot of pressure on your joints. And, you know, uh, if you have strong quadriceps muscles, you depend less on your knees as a shock absorber than if you have weak nut muscles. And we also suggest some weight loss in patients who are overweight. I'm not talking about you have to get down to your ideal body weight or what you weighed in high school, but if you can take some weight off 10% of your body, if you're very obese, that will provide some relief in the pressure on the joints. It may not equate to pain relief immediately, but it's an important step in trying to maintain the health of your joints as long as you can. So that's a wonderful segue into certain that patients go, well, what can I do? Is there a dietary modification? Can I exercise still? What type of exercises? So we were just referring to osteo and strengthening quadriceps. Let, let's talk more exercise and then we'll ask about any dietary issues. So what else do you advise folks to do? So I think exercise is an important medication, if you want to call it that. It's often challenging because patients have joint pain. There's multiple goals for the exercise that we want patients with osteoarthritis to do. One is we want to maintain their joint as long as we can and their function of their mobility. So the generally the best types of exercise um, for osteoarthritis in the lower extremities is walking on a flat surface and consistency is the key. Start low and go slow. You don't have to, um, you know, ramp it up quickly. Another type of exercise that we recommend is, is cycling. It wouldn't have to be on a bicycle. It could be on a stationary bicycle and again, slow. Uh, water exercise is one of the best. Now that's often a challenge for people because they either don't have access to a pool um, or they, you know, it's hard for them to get to the pool. Um, but water, even walking in waist-deep water 
will help balance and strength and sometimes will relieve pain. Water aerobics in the, um, you know, helps patients to get their heart rate up and preserve their overall health. Exercise, of course, tends to help with weight loss in patients who are overweight. So we, we really stress exercise as a therapy for osteoarthritis and really general health as well. So it is an important adjunct. We sometimes refer patients to physical therapy, but exercises that we are talking about here, a patient can do on his or her own as well. And even just a good pair of walking shoes and trying to walk for 20 minutes a day and build up as much as you can and strengthen your muscles is always good. And any dietary, uh, you know, useful dietary modifications or something in the diet that you would add that would help? That's a really interesting question and has been perplexing to many people for many, many years. Diet studies are really hard to do. Dietary recall is tough. We don't really know what's in a lot of the processed foods that we eat. So that they're really, really hard. So in general, we advise patients to eat a healthy diet, one that will maintain your cardiovascular health, your bone health with vitamin D and those types of things. There, there's really no uh, type of diet that will help inflammation in a dramatic way. Um, and so we rec- recommend a prudent diet. Um, there are people that if they eat certain foods, they seem to flare, but it's not consistent across many people. And similarly, there are some people that do not have um, celiac disease, when, which you should avoid breads and glutens of all kinds. But there are some people that have rheumatoid arthritis that say if they start excluding gluten from their diet, they feel better. So I never discourage people from doing those. I do discourage people from any kind of diet that says it's going to cure your arthritis. So food supplements are not regulated by the Food and Drug Administration. So you could walk into a health food store and there's a bottle of shark cartilage and it says cures your arthritis. And then you read the fine print at the bottom and it says the U.S. Food and Drug Administration has not evaluated these statements and this product is not intended to prevent, treat, or cure or treat any known disease. So um, food supplements are out there, vitamins. I also encourage people to pay attention to their finances. If this new drug, this new food supplement or this new diet is gonna be really helpful to their arthritis and it costs $200 a month, uh, run, run as fast as you can. So, So I think just common sense, but there's no real cure-all in terms of diet, unfortunately. And so then that kind of loops around to looking at two things. One, I wanted to go back when you mentioned that some people have blood levels, one of the markers that can be elevated that precedes symptoms. Is there something you would give that person? Would you treat that person? That's a great question. And in fact, we treat People, there are a lot of research studies going on now to try to prevent rheumatoid arthritis. And so rheumatoid arthritis has this phase that I just mentioned that you alluded to where you have antibodies, but you don't have arthritis. 
So there are studies, and we were participating in a big one that just finished, and it randomized people that had these antibodies that were high titer, but didn't yet have arthritis to either Plaquenil for a year or placebo for a year. And unfortunately, the preliminary analysis is that that made no difference in preventing rheumatoid arthritis. Now, these in pe were people that did not have rheumatoid arthritis, but if, you know, if someone has the antibodies and they have rheumatoid arthritis, that does inform to some degree, at least theoretically, our drug choices, because we do have drugs that target different pathways. And so some might propose that you would use a therapy that targets the cells that make antibodies, and that might be reasonable. But you also have to take into account risks, side effects, costs, you know, coverage of insurance, lots of other different things as well. So the antibodies are a useful marker, and we would hope that it's someday, someday we would like to be able to say, look, you have these antibodies, we're going to give you this treatment, and it's going to prevent you from developing rheumatoid arthritis. But a lot more research needs to be done because we're not there yet. And now let's, one other question I had on treatment, let's go back to rheumatoid. When you give people, say the mild to moderate group, oral medicines, is that lifelong or do they treat? And then if they respond, do you give them a break and a holiday and see how they do for how long? Or do you just continue it because you don't want them to pop back into a symptomatic situation? It's the latter case. We, we generally treat long-term. And some of the studies that have been done where you treat and then you stop the medication, a high number, a high percentage of patients with rheumatoid will recur within a year. So another hot area of research is what if someone's been in remission, meaning no joint swelling and tender for a long time, can you taper? The dose. So I didn't talk about some of the newer uh, medications we have. That uh, one one category is oral, the so-called JAK inhibitors, JAK inhibitors, and we have injectables like tumor necrosis factor TNF inhibitors, IL six interleukin six inhibitors. So the question is: these drugs are really expensive. Rheumatoid arthritis affects as much as one percent of the U.S. population. You're talking many, many, many millions of dollars of treatment per year. So um, can you taper the dose? But we don't have great markers of who. The answer is yes. Some people can taper the dose or maybe even stop it, but we don't. And it's less likely that they're going to flare if they've been in remission for a long time. But we don't have good markers yet of which patients are going to flare and which are not. So. That's another set of uh, research studies that are very interested and still ongoing. But in general, the, parent, the, the model is if you have rheumatoid and it's inflammatory and it's active, you treat it and you keep treating it for as long as the patient has. As long as the patient is alive, you treat them because it's likely it's going to come back if you stop it. We didn't really get into the um, newer drugs that, as you stated, we are not seeing such advanced disease because we have these new treatments. And that also probably leads into some of your passion for some of your research areas of w what we can do. Do you want to just uh, elaborate on that a little bit? 
Yeah, there's, you know, there's always new drugs coming out. There's a lot of really exciting research efforts. One of the things we're doing here at the Hospital for Special Surgery in collaboration with other investigators throughout the country is it's a project called the Accelerating Medicines Partnership. So it's trying to look at tissue from affected joints and seeing if we can identify new targets to create new drugs. That's always going to be on the table to try to identify new targets. There are always new drugs to try to attack the targets that we currently know about. But I think one thing that's really exciting and may hold future promise is not so much drug therapy, but um, cellular therapy. So targeting T cells, T lymphocytes, targeting giving mesenchymal stem cells. So stem cells is a question we get a lot. You know, should I get some stem cells injected into my knee? The answer is right now that industry is not very well regulated and we don't have good evidence that you should have cells injected into your knee. But I think as research progresses, cellular therapies into the bloodstream or into the joints may hold some promise. We're just not there quite yet. And uh, when you have the most extreme cases that you have tried the newer medications and they're still progressing, there is joint replacement? There is. And a common question that I get is, when do I have to have my knee replaced? Or when do I have to have my hip replaced? And the answer that I usually give kind of surprises people. And I say, well, never. And they say, well, what do you mean? And I say, well, a hip or a knee is a replacement is a big operation. If it impedes your quality of life, then you should definitely consider having it done. But it is risky. There are some side effects. It's not, I don't say it's risky, but there are some potential bad outcomes. And it's about expectations and quality. So if you are at functioning at 95% of what you need to do and your knee is bone on bone, I don't think you should have your knee replaced because you're able to do what you want to do. If, on the other hand, you have moderate osteoarthritis which or rheumatoid arthritis that has led to secondary osteoarthritis and you have bone on bone and, you know, your goal is to fly to see your grandson in whatever city he or he lives in and you get an injection of cortisone before you go and you get back and you're fine and you don't have any problems and that's your only expectation, I don't think you should have your knee replaced. But if it really impedes, you can't control the pain, you can't function the way you want to do, you can't work, and it's to the stage where the orthopedic surgeon thinks it's feasible and reasonable, then I think I would. Excellent. Excellent. Well, there's other rheumatological diseases to just touch on. We're closing in on our time, and I appreciate everything that you've reviewed for us. Do you want to look at uh, any of the other particular rheumatological diseases and just make some comments? Some of the other inflammatory types of arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, that's an arthritis that goes along with psoriasis. Um, there's a lot of new treatments for that category of, uh, of a lot of different categories of drugs for the treatment of that condition. So there's a lot of hope, IL-17 inhibitors and lots of other categories categories of drugs. So that is in the category of inflammatory arthritis. Um, gout is another type of inflammatory arthritis, and we have very good treatments to prevent gout, allopurinol, and similar drugs. 
So those types of conditions, I think we have good therapies for. Some of the other diseases that we see, ankylosing spondylitis is often difficult to diagnose early, but we are developing more and more treatments for that condition as well. The single biggest need, I think, or let me say the two biggest needs are treatment of osteoarthritis, which we do not have good drugs for or good strategies for to slow it down or reverse it. And the other big need is finding ways to use our drugs more effectively, either in combination or knowing which drugs to cycle uh, through first, finding a biomarker of which category of drug should be most effective in an individual patient. So I think those are two of the biggest needs, and these are things that are actively being researched by investigators, rheumatologists, and other professionals all over the country. Do you have any other thoughts on some of the people who are suffering from lupus? And, you know, that always seemed to be such a severe disease in the past. And just a little brief overview of that and where we are, where you're making improvements in treatment. Lupus is really progressing. The treatment approaches to lupus are really progressing well. For a long time, we had no new drugs for lupus treatment. Now we have a drug called thalimumab. We have another one called map, And the map targets a particular molecule called interferon. And a lot of the work that was done, lay the groundwork for that was done here at the Hospital for Special Surgery also. So the most feared complication of lupus, I think, is in the brain or in the kidney. There's a lot of research going on to try to address that. One of the most exciting advances is, as I alluded to earlier, is cell therapy. So there's a, a lot of hope around a treatment called CAR T-cell therapy. CAR stands for chimeric antigen receptor. And it's a very exciting advance. There's some preliminary data that it could be very helpful. Patients' blood is drawn. Their cells are isolated. They're changed in the lab so that they will identify a certain set of markers that we think are important in causing the propagation of lupus disease. Then they're injected back into the patient and they have shown some promise. Um, It's still very early stages, but I think that does give us some hope for the future for new treatments for lupus. Excellent. Well, we always like to leave listeners with some potential resources where they can find more information. Do you have any favorites that you would recommend? Uh, the Rheumatology Research Foundation has American College of Rheumatology has educational materials on the websites. The Arthritis Foundation does as well. So there's a lot of resources out there. Be wary of Dr. Google. There's a lot of information out there that's not necessarily based on science. The Center for Disease Control, the National Institutes of Health, the American College of Rheumatology, and the Associated Rheumatology Research Foundation, the Arthritis Foundation, these are good sources of of information. Excellent. Excellent. And uh, I'll be putting those down on the website so people can find them. And again, I just think this is such a fascinating area of growth at this time. Do you want to, uh, just as a passion in your research, just touch on what you're doing? One of the things I've been most passionate about is precision medicine. So when a patient comes in and they say, I have, you know, I tell them they have rheumatoid arthritis, they ask, well, which drugs of these 14 is going to work best for me? And I say, I don't know. 
will have to try them and hit and miss. So that's one of my passions is to really have the information we need to target therapy that works well up front and not have to have a patient go through months of trial and error before they get to the best drug for them. Well, I can't thank you enough for joining us and, and sharing your wisdom and information and your time. Um, as a chair, I know how busy you are. And I just, uh, it's wonderful. And so uh, if we can have uh, folks who need to know more about this area of disease, uh, know about it. Uh, people who are listening, pass it on. If you know somebody with rheumatological diseases, I'm sure they would benefit from listening. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure being with you, and thank you for inviting me. Dr. Bridges, thank you. This completes another episode of the original Guide to Men's Health podcast. We wish to thank all guests who volunteered their time and knowledge. The information presented is the opinion of the speakers. The show's recordings are engineered and edited by Sean Fox. Episode titles and descriptions, as well as editing assistance, are provided by Dr. Kathleen O'Connor, Ph.D. Music for our show is San Juan Bells, written and performed by Dr. David Whiting. The podcast is sponsored and published by the Washington State Urology Society. The original Guide to Men's Health is an original publication of the Washington State Urology Society. Reproduction and use without the expressed or written consent of the society is prohibited. For more information about men's health and previous episodes, as well as additional recommended resources, visit us online at theoriginalguidetomenshealth.com. This is Dr. Richard Pellman thanking you for listening and reminding you to take care of yourself.